Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Blessed be Providence, which has given to each his toy. The doll to the child, the child to the woman, the woman to the man, the man to the devil. Victor Hugo. In Children, a new paranormal thriller game from Quirky Engine Entertainment, one has to ask, are the kids all right? The Thornhill Mansion holds many secrets. Just before the turn into the 20th century, Erwin Biddle purchased the house and turned it into what he called an orphan care facility. But a severe governorship made the home for lost children anything but a haven. In an act of contrition, accident, or malevolence, Erwin Biddle set fire to the orphanage, trapping the children therein. Over a century later, a mining tycoon called Thornhill Holland purchased and renovated the old house. But he left after living there for less than 90 days, saying the place is a house of the dead. No sane person can live well within its walls. Thirteen child spirits live in the Thornhill, victims of the devastating fire that happened so long ago. You are welcome to chance a stay in the ghostly orphanage, but can you be the one to finally put the children to rest? Or will the malevolent child spirits drive you insane? Children, a three-headed giant game from Quirky Engine Entertainment, comes with 112 cards, four player pawns, 12 skull tokens, and one kitty kitty token. If you dare, you can visit the Thornhill Mansion and walk its rooms searching for antique toys to trap the 13 malevolent children who move through the house's spectral flows. But the children are jealous. If you find the wrong item, you can make one of them, well, angry. There is always a way in, but is there a way out? The Thornhill Mansion is mercurial. Its rooms can shift as players lay cards down to build the mansion. Secret passages allow you to creep behind the walls to chambers unexplored. Bewitched objects can bring you fortune or anguish as you attempt to clear the Thornhill Mansion of its sinister younglings. Do you dare visit the Thornhill Mansion and discover its secrets? Can you be the one to trap its vengeful residents? You can only find out if you play Children, a three-headed giant game from Quirky Engine Entertainment. The Terrifying Lies Podcast with music and stories by Craig Nibo. Greetings, friends. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 4 of the Terrifying Lies Podcast. I'm your host, Craig Nibo. Several years ago, I created a horror board game called Children. In the game, you play the part of a ghost hunter wandering around a Victorian mansion trying to exercise the ghosts of 13 children who reside therein. When I develop a board game, I like to spend a significant amount of time building its world, much the same as if I'm writing a novel. I wanted to make the Victorian manor a very scary place. To do so, I wrote brief histories attached to each of the home's 25 rooms. The result? 
a three-story mansion with so much negative energy that one couldn't help but get the heebie-jeebies just by walking through the front door. I put each of these flash fiction stories to music to add extra terror. The overall story of what I call the Thornhill Manor intrigues me so much that, on occasion, I consider writing a long-form piece with more fleshed-out versions of these stories. I've considered doing this as an anthology and inviting other authors aboard, but I keep kicking that stone down the road. Who knows, maybe someday I'll go for it. For now, I have the blueprints of horror that trace every floor, wall, and corner of the most haunted house in existence. For today, I give you the first 14 rooms of the Thornhill Manor. Look for the rest of the rooms in the next episode. I encourage you to stay calm and try not to let your sanity slip as I guide you through these hallways of dread. A guided tour of the Thornhill Manor, performed by Craig Nibo, with original music composed by Craig Nibo. Welcome to the Thornhill Mansion, located at the corner of Wicked and Dead. The now decrepit walls of this ancient domicile still stand against the clawing degradation of abandonment and the reach of ages. As a bastion, this house has withstood the barrages of nature, the cries of the living and the pounding black heartbeats of the dead. The house's reign spans just over a century and holds the stories of three families and nameless tenants within its walls. It has been said that to visit the Thornhill is to entertain a love affair with insanity itself. For from the ranks and files of the able-minded, this house has claimed many casualties. The Thornhills, the first family of the Thornhill Mansion. Some might suggest the Gilded Age of the Thornhill Mansion began when Cornelius Thornhill, Steamboat, and Rail Tycoon finished overseeing the mansion's construction. He moved his wife, Henrietta, his two children, Gabriella and Christopher, and an idiot brother, Brahm, into its majestic frame on June 20th, 1916. But another unconventional tenant came to stay. Cornelius had the body of his father, Rule Thornhill, the amasser of the original family fortune, exhumed from upstate New York and planted in the garden plot west of the Spire's Overlook. Cornelius had one estranged brother, Charles Thornhill. As a young man, Charles changed his name to Griefer and joined a traveling outfit called Nicholas Noir's Midnight Carnival and Sideshow. Griefer and the love of his life, a sideshow act known as Angelique the Bearded Lady, both perished in a train accident while on tour. Griefer's effects were sent to Cornelius, where they are stored in the attic of the mansion. Erwin Biddle, master of the second family of the Thornhill Mansion. Upon Cornelius Thornhill's untimely demise, with no progeny to whom he could bequeath his estate, the Thornhill mansion was put on the market by Reuben Stith, 
the family's attorney. Due to the unusual chain of deaths that took each of Cornelius' family members' lives, with the exception of Brom Thornhill, who was unable to care for himself, and hence included as a permanent resident of the house under the care of its subsequent owner, Stith was forced to list the Thornhill mansion far below its former market value. The low price of the house drew Irwin Biddle's attention. For 23 years, Irwin had acted as headmaster for an institution called the Newman Academy for Children. Craving a fresh start, he set out to found his own institution. With partial funding from the U.S. government and from a handful of private donors, Biddle purchased the Thornhill Mansion to start his endeavor, an orphan care facility that he called the Thornhill Biddle Academy for Disadvantaged Children. the third family of the Thornhill Mansion. Arthur Holland, a mid-century railroad tycoon, fell in love with the Thornhill Mansion's architecture while on a rail station scouting visit in the area. The large manor, tucked into a canvas of lush forests, seemed to beckon to him. He purchased the Thornhill Mansion and began renovations immediately. Restoring the house required nearly $20,000, a fortune at the time, but Arthur gladly paid the fee. Upon the house's completed renovation, Arthur moved his wife, Leslie, and son, Alexander, into the house. But the Thornhill Mansion did not offer the isolated peace Arthur had expected, for the Holland family were not the mansion's only residents. Frequent disturbances and influences from beyond the grave nod at the very sanity of Arthur's family, young Alexander had to be sent away to the Utica Psychiatric Center in New York City, and Leslie collapsed into alcoholism. In a desperate attempt to save the house, Arthur called in a medium, but the woman came to a tragic end when confronting forces from beyond that boarded in the house. Arthur took his wife and a few belongings and left the house in October of 1958. The Thornhill Mansion has remained abandoned to this day. Welcome to the first floor of the Thornhill Mansion, the parlor. We begin our tour in the parlor, a grand room, perhaps the heart of the home. It is here that Henrietta Thornhill, wife of Cornelius, entertained friends, or so she called them. With her stump figure and slight limp, Henrietta often found herself outside the society clubs and gatherings to which she aspired. But her money brought company. And so company came, but company only brought with it snide whispers from the corners of the parlor. All but estranged from her business-absorbed husband, Henrietta did find a kind of solace in her loveless existence. Her piano tutor, 
A mild and balding man called Niles Perrin came weekly for lessons. After years of poring over the keys with the man, Henrietta ultimately declared her love for Niles, baldness and all. But her advance was met with protest, for Niles Perrin already had a country wife and wanted no other love. One afternoon, as Niles became engrossed in song, playing the heirloom Steinway, Henrietta locked the parlor entrances and drew four daggers from one of the room's priceless museum pieces, relics from the American Revolutionary War. Henrietta buried three of the four daggers in the keys of her piano. The location of the fourth remains a mystery, but Niles Perrin was never heard from again after that day. kitchen. Cornelius Thornhill employed a modest staff, including his house steward, Gustav Hitchens, the cook, Elaine Truwill, and the lady's maid and valet, Ivy Riley. Cornelius transplanted this trifecta of hand-and-mouth servants from his former manor, located in the countryside west of Plattsburgh, overlooking Lake Champlain, to the Thornhill mansion. As house steward, Gustav Hitchens loyally spanned the lives of two generations, having served rural Thornhill through his failing years and into his death. On his deathbed, the old man requested that he be buried with three priceless objects. The Luxor, a 24-carat ring given to rule by his spiritual leader, Pascal Beverly Randolph. The ring featured a hand engraved symbol of the Hermetic Brotherhood of Luxor. Rule was also buried with Forbidden Rites and the Dead, a handwritten, one-of-a-kind treatise penned by Pascal Beverly Randolph himself. The third item was a scarab breastplate, an Egyptian relic procured by Rule during his visit to the Valley of the Kings. Rule believed that these objects would entitle him to great power in the afterlife. At the time, Cornelius Thornhill ordered his father's body exhumed and transplanted to the garden of his new home, Hitchens, Truill, and Riley made a soul-damning pact to procure the three relics from their former employer's body. While removing the Luxor ring from Rule's hand, Hitchens broke Rule's left ring finger off at the second knuckle. In a rush, the house steward was forced to take both the ring and the finger. Later, the three servants met in the kitchen to divide their spoils. Gustav Hitchens took the ring and threw his master's finger into a fire built by Elaine Truwill in the kitchen stove.
the dining hall. Erwin Biddle used the dining room to award children for good behavior. He invited those who showed appreciable attitudes during lessons and chores to dine at the main table rather than in the dormitory. Over dinner one night, Penny, a six-year-old ward of the Thornhill Biddle Academy, sat at the main table with Erwin and a few other children. She spoke of her new pet, a creature that she called Aziza, whom she had met in the forest outside the mansion. Aziza, she said, spoke to her. Sometimes he was in the form of a fox. At other times he'd come to her as a bird or a raccoon. Biddle waved off the girl's story as childish fantasy. During the main course, Penny asked if she could be excused for a moment. Biddle allowed her to leave the table. Moments later, she returned to the dining room standing atop an enormous crocodile. I'd like you all to meet Aziza, she said, as the croc crawled into the room bearing Penny's weight on its back. The dining room exploded into pandemonium. Erwin Biddle ultimately subdued the fierce reptile with a baseball bat he kept in the adjacent billiards room. Penny was sent to the quiet room as punishment for bringing Aziza into the mansion. Although Biddle managed to kill the crocodile, Aziza continued to appear to Penny in different forms until her death in a devastating fire in the fall of 1939. Terrifying Lies podcast will return after this short commercial break. Welcome back to the Terrifying Lies podcast. The Library Cornelius Thornhill's heart became a stone after his wife's betrayal and murderous act in the parlor under the very roof he had built for her. After Henrietta's suicide by hanging in prison, Cornelius focused on his work, spending most of his waking hours in the library, the room to which he had paid closest attention during the mansion's architecture. In the library, he kept his costly collection of books, festooned on towering shelves, the highest of which only accessible by climbing one of a pair of oak rolling ladders. Perhaps Cornelius's only solace from brooding came from his daughter, Gabriella, whom he singularly allowed to visit him while he worked. He'd even brought in her rocking horse, a hand-carved piece he had ordered from Paris at great expense. The mare had become Gabriella's most loved companion. Cornelius felt soothed by the rhythmic sound of the horse as Gabriella played opposite his desk. Cornelius caught Gabriella on more than one occasion high on the rolling ladder rungs, reading the spines of his most treasured volumes. Each time Cornelius caught her atop the ladders, he gently brought her down and told her to keep her feet on the ground. One day, after poring over reports regarding construction of a Midwestern rail station he had funded, he left his desk for a drink, not thinking anything of leaving his daughter to play in the library. As he poured himself a finger of scotch from a parlor caddy, he heard an explosion and clatter. He put his drink down and ran to the library where he found that Gabriella had fallen from one of the rolling ladders. She lay at an unnatural angle over her hardwood rocking horse. 
Cornelius called for Arliss North, the family physician. But by the time the man entered the mansion, the girl was gone. Cornelius sank deeper into depression and became more preoccupied with his work. He never removed Gabriella's rocking horse from the library and even found quenching solace from the pain on the occasions when the horse began to rock on its own as he pored over reports and ledgers at his desk. The Billiards Room Cornelius Thornhill inherited a love for hunting from his father, Rule Thornhill. Although Cornelius attempted to instill the same passion into his son, Christopher, the boy never became enchanted by the sport. But young Christopher could not help but feel that his younger sister, Gabriella, was the only child to be allowed at his father's table of love, and that Christopher was forced to subsist only on the table scraps. When Gabriella died as the result of a tragic fall from a rolling ladder in the library, like his father, Christopher felt saddened by the loss. But in his heart, Christopher hoped that in some way, his father would allow him to sit at the table and to fully partake of his father's love. But Cornelius only became more withdrawn and brooding after his daughter's death, leaving Christopher mostly to his own devices. One day, while in the billiards room, Christopher looked up at his father's hunting trophies, the taxidermy heads of elk and moose. An idea came upon him of how he could win his father's love once and for all. Christopher recovered his father's hunting rifle and went out into the nearby woods to hunt. In the waning light of the evening, he spotted a fox and took chase. But before he could bag his prize in the heat of the hunt, he tripped on a thicket of scrub oak brush and fell on his gun. The rifle accidentally discharged, killing him instantly. In his melancholy, Cornelius didn't miss the boy. It was only when Gustav Hitchens, the house steward, brought the boy's absence to his attention that Cornelius called in a search of the grounds and the surrounding woods. Christopher was found two days after the accident and buried one week later next to his sister, and grandfather in the west garden of the Thornhill mansion. When Cornelius realized that his son had gone hunting in an effort to win his love, he took an axe to his trophies hanging in the billiards room. He chopped them to pieces and burned them in the basement boiler room. tour resumes in the second floor of the Thornhill Mansion, the headmaster's office. Erwin Biddle purchased the Thornhill Mansion after it was on the market for two years. It seemed that the house's nefarious past kept it from being sold. Upon receiving the deed for the property, Biddle set to work on renovations as much of the house had fallen into disrepair. He chose a second-story room one of the servants' quarters to use as his office. 
After founding the Thornhill Biddle Academy for disadvantaged children, Irwin sought tenants for his residence, children who were wards of the state for which Biddle could collect government funds in trade for boarding and supplying some education. But Biddle's patience with children ran short. He punished them often in varying degrees. He found that one of the most efficient methods of discipline came from taking a problem child's favorite toy and placing it into a wooden crate he kept in his office. There the toys remained in plain sight as reminders that the academy's headmaster tolerated nothing less than perfect behavior. But Biddle became perplexed when toys began to disappear from his wooden crate. He would find them sitting on the shelves, the headmaster's bookcases, or even in the drawers of his roll-top desk. He locked the headmaster's office to keep children from removing the toys, but this didn't stop him from finding ceramic dolls, teddy bears, and glass figurines around the house in places where they seemed to stare at him, on vanities and countertops, on top of his desk, even in his bed. Toys in general began to unnerve the headmaster. Ultimately, he couldn't abide them in his presence, and the children who lived at the academy were forced to keep them out of his sight or lose them to his rage. Leland became a ward of the state when both his parents perished aboard a riverboat on the Canestio River called the Sultan. The boat had been in service since the mid-18th century and had become the draw of many who craved the amenities, gambling, and entertainment aboard the vessel. Leland was the son of Muriel and Archibald Nunez, a couple who had found each other in the world of traveling entertainment. One night, after finishing their show, they tucked Leland in bed with a kiss and a little prayer. Little Leland couldn't have known that he would never see his parents alive again. Shortly after midnight, the weak iron-plated boiler exploded, instantly killing 63 people. Leland's parents were standing on the lower balcony at the moment of impact. Both were impaled by splinters from the blast and thrown into the water. As the boat went down, Leland, calling for his parents, grabbed his father's heirloom banjo and stepped off the sinking vessel. After nearly an hour of floating with help from the instrument and swimming with the current, Leland made it to land. With no parents, Leland became a ward of the state and eventually was placed in Irwin Biddle's care at the Biddle Thornhill Academy for Disadvantaged Children. Young Leland kept his father's banjo and learned to play, often locking himself in the second-story washroom to practice. The boy's playing became a source of irritation to Irwin Biddle. Eventually, the headmaster lost his patience and broke into the washroom while the boy practiced his instrument. Biddle snatched the banjo from Leland's hands and broke it over his knee. He then tied Leland to one of the cast-iron tub claws and left him for three days without food. Leland survived by drinking from the tub 
to which he was bound. He never played the banjo again. Bedroom. Ivy Riley, lady's maid and ballet for Rule and Henrietta Thornhill, came with Cornelius and his family to the newly built Thornhill mansion. Her place among the staff had become more family than employee, but her ghoulish act along with two other house staff members to rob the body of Rule Thornhill upon his exhumation became her undoing. As part of the trifecta's pact, Ivy kept the forbidden rites in the dead, a handwritten treatise penned by Pascal Beverly Randolph, spiritual leader for Rural Thornhill. Reading regularly from the treatise drove Ivy Riley mad. She wandered the halls of the mansion throughout the night, occasionally causing harm to the house by slitting the wallpaper and curtains with a kitchen knife or throwing objects through the windows. Cornelius Thornhill ultimately took action when he awoke to find her straddling over him with a raised knife in her hand, wearing a ghoulish twist of a smile. After wrestling the knife away and locking her in the master bedroom, he sent word to Arliss North, the family's physician. North and Thornhill committed Ivy Riley to the Utica Psychiatric Center located in New York City. But Ivy Riley had opened a gate to the unknown that could not easily be closed. Years later, after Irwin Biddle had converted the Thornhill mansion into an orphan care facility, he admitted a boy named Seth Paramore, an urchin of the streets with no family to speak of. Seth resided in the second-story bedroom. Soon after the boy's admission to the Thornhill Biddle Academy, he began showing signs of madness similar to Ivy Riley's. He wandered the mansion throughout the night, muttering meaningless gibberish to himself. Shortly before the devastating fire of 1939, young Seth killed Manx, Erwin Biddle's trusted German shepherd, and painted a series of foreign symbols on the walls and floor of the second-story bedroom in the dog's blood. The Dormitory. During the five-year span of time in which the Biddle Thornhill Academy for Disadvantaged Children operated, the borders of the academy were kept in a single room, a second-floor dormitory outfitted with military-style twin bunks. Erwin Biddle only allowed each child a small sea chest in which to keep their possessions. Any belongings that couldn't fit into their chests were thrown out. During the earlier years of operation, each child was also allowed to have one toy. 
But as Erwin Biddle became increasingly paranoid, he confiscated all toys, at least the ones he could find, and burned them in the mansion's boiler room. Perhaps after the death of Manx, Erwin Biddle's German shepherd, his only friends in life were a pair of mastiff dogs named Maximilian and Xavier. Whether it be hunting, hiking through the outlying forest, or sharing time in the parlor, Biddle spent hours a day with his two animals. The headmaster gave his two well-trained dogs the run of the house. Upon Biddle's purge of the academy children's toys, Clarissa and Karuna, a pair of orphan twins, boarders of the academy, turned their anger onto Biddle's two mastiffs. The two dogs often slept in the dormitory on a pair of quilts left by their master. One evening, the twins walked to an outboard shed and stole a pair of shovels. Moving light-footedly through the mansion, they made their way up to the second-floor dormitory with their tools. None of the other children sleeping or lying awake in the dormitory beds paid attention as the twins, in a synchronized moment of fury, beat the two mastiffs to death with their shovels. The twins carried the two dog carcasses down the stairs outside into the nearby woods. They dug shallow graves for the animals and laid them to rest. Erwin Biddle mourned the loss of his two mastiffs, but never suspected any of the children he boarded as capable of taking his beloved companions' lives. The Master Bedroom During the summer months of 1939, the already eccentric Erwin Biddle spun from mentally touched to paranoid. In some respects, the children of the Academy viewed their headmaster's descent into madness as a blessing. The children used Biddle's nearly crippling fear of toys against him. Often they would steal food from the pantry or fruit cellar and hoard it in nooks around the mansion. By marking directions to these nooks in charcoal pictographs, the children could lead each other to caches of sustenance. To protect these caches, the children would often place their toys such that many sets of inanimate eyes stared at likely approaching intruders. This tactic effectively kept Erwin Biddle away. One afternoon, Elnora, one of the children, after being released from extended solitary confinement in the quiet room, decided on a ploy to imprison Erwin Biddle once and for all. She gathered a few of the children's toys, including her favorite, a shrunken head given to her by a homeless man she only knew as Old Nick, who had befriended her on the streets of New York City. With her toys in hand, she risked entering the master bedroom while the headmaster was at dinner. She placed the toys around the room in such a way that once Biddle entered, he would not be able to leave without passing through the gaze of several sets of glass and button eyes. To Elnora's horror, as she hung her shrunken head around the doorknob, she heard Biddle's boots approaching. With no time to escape, she hid in the master bedroom wardrobe. Biddle entered his room and began to dress for bed. With his pajama bottoms on and no shirt, he turned 
to notice several sets of eyes staring at him from different points about the room. The headmaster frenzied. He clambered over to the wardrobe and flew the doors open. Elnora avoided being spotted only by a fraction of a second. Biddle recovered a hunting rifle he kept in the wardrobe, the same rifle that brought young Christopher Thornhill to his tragic accidental end. The headmaster threw back the bolt and began to fire, putting bullets into the walls and furniture, occasionally hitting one of the toys. A bullet pelted through the wardrobe and grazed Elnora on the upper arm. She bit her tongue and crouched down so she could watch Biddle through a keyhole. When the headmaster had his back to the wardrobe, she made a run for it. Biddle wheeled on the girl and fired twice but missed both times as she fled the master bedroom. Elnora's attempt to imprison the headmaster failed, as from that day forward, Erwin Biddle carried Cornelius Thornhill's hunting rifle, fully loaded at all times. This has been a guided tour of the Thornhill Manor, performed by Craig Nibo, with original music composed by Craig Nibo. For today's song, I give you something from my second Zombie Sing-Along album. This is a little tune about the ghosts and ghouls that peel out of the shadows when the full moon decides to raise its head. I collaborated with my friend Matt Fackrell on this tune. He wrote the lyrics. I composed the music. I now give you Full Moon Out Tonight. Strong and die, you brave. Can you really 
This has been Full Moon Out Tonight, with lyrics by Matt Fackrell and music by Craig Nibo. Thank you once again for joining me on the Terrifying Lies podcast. As usual, I thank you for coming into this room and spending a few minutes with me. Come back for the next episode to hear about the remaining rooms of the Thornhill Mansion. Until then, sweet nightmares. This has been the Terrifying Lies podcast. Please come again. You're welcome here. (laughs) 